Uh, Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it's page number 482. 482. This morning, we'll begin our descent of our 15-week journey, our hike through the Everest of Ecclesiastes, right? A hike it has been. Todd has done a fantastic job serving us well uh, week in and week out, hasn't he? Unpacking deep truths for us to sink our hearts and minds into and bringing practical application to the forefront. Uh, And I can assure you from our midweek conversations with him, this has not been an easy task. He might even say, probably would say, this has been the hardest series he has ever preached. Uh, But we're just thankful and grateful for Todd. So can we just give him a round of applause this morning for serving us so well through this book? We're thankful, thankful, thankful to have him as our pastor, aren't we? Uh, So today we will uh, work through chapter 11, and we'll start into chapter 12, and then Todd will wrap us up next week. We are almost there, almost there. All right, so if you were here last week, we were looking at this topic of, of wisdom, of wisdom, and we saw that wisdom is ultimately a matter of faith. How you live determines who you trust. If you trust in yourself, if you trust in others, you'll be walking in what the Bible would call a worldly wisdom. But if your trust is rooted in God, if you're resting in Him, relying on Him, you get to tap into this otherworldly wisdom the Bible calls a wisdom from above. And that's what we're going to look at more and more this morning, this wisdom from above. So if you're a note taker and you want a framework, two things to hang your thoughts on this morning. We're going to look at wise living in view of an uncertain future. That's going to be chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. And then we'll spend some time on wise living in view of a certain future. It's going to be verse 7 through chapter 12, verse 7. We're just going to jump right in. Uh, Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Amen. We're just going to jump right in this morning. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. So let's pause there for a moment. So does anyone here know what tomorrow is going to bring? Is something tragic going to happen? Something life-altering? None of us know that. Because life is utterly unpredictable. So how do we live today in view of an uncertain future? Well, verse 1 through 3 recommend that we plan now so we're not knocked off course then. That we prepare today for the unexpected tomorrow. Solomon uses this image here in verse 1 of of casting bread on the waters. And this is a reference to ancient commerce, specifically the shipping of grain from a seaport town. And by the thrust of verse 2, we kind of get a sense of what he's talking about here. He's painting for us a picture of a wise practice of spreading out our resources in multiple directions. He says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. So the idea here is to diversify your portfolio or to explore multiple avenues for making a living so that if something unforeseen happens in one area of your finances, you still have others to fall back on and keep you afloat. This is very practical stuff. And as verse 3 points out, 
many of life's circumstances are beyond the sphere of our control, right? We have no idea what tomorrow's going to bring. It'll rain when it rains, Solomon says. There's nothing you can do about it. And a tree will fall whichever way it falls. There's, there's nothing we can do to, to alter the direction of a falling tree. His point here are, is that there are God-ordained laws of nature that we can recognize and we can even strategize, but we can't always forecast with 100% certainty how things are going to work out in our lives. At, at times, no matter how secure you think you are in a career, your position might be terminated. Or no matter how much work you put into a crop, it, it might be lost in a storm. So Solomon's exhortation to us all is to plan now as best you can for when, not if, when unexpected things happen. And it's also wise, he would point out, speaking along investment terms, is to be sensible and conservative, to, to not gamble everything on one opportunity. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, or don't put all the chips on the table. Because if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Now, by, by no means am I a financial advisor, though there are some in this church who are, if you need some help in that area. Um, but this is a wise practice, this idea of diversification. And it's among a few key principles for planning and investing wisely. It won't guarantee success, but at least it diminishes risk. So there's wisdom in, in spreading out our resources and taking things slow. Take caution. Beware, Solomon is saying, of unwise, hasty decisions in terms of finances. Well, that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, some of us put all the chips on the table. Others of us go way too slow in certain areas. Some of us are prone to miss out on great opportunities because we become paralyzed by indecision. Or we procrastinate. Or we're just downright lazy. Look at verse 4. He brings our attention to th this idea. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. So, so he's using this farming analogy here, right? And Solomon's saying that if you spend too much time watching the wind or looking at the clouds, you'll never actually get anything done. In other words, for us, if, if you're waiting for the right time when all the perfect conditions are in place to do something, you may never actually get started because perfect conditions might never come. You know, for some of us, sometimes we just need to get up and start moving. Just stop thinking and start working. For many of us, there are things in our lives right now that we're hesitant to begin. Perhaps we fear failure, or we just don't want to put in the time and energy we know that will be required, so we procrastinate. We put things on the back burner. I don't know about you, but this describes me quite often. I get so paralyzed by analysis, that idea of analysis paralysis, right? trying to think everything through, get it all in the perfect order and condition, that I just never get anything done. Sometimes it's wise to wait, right, and to seek counsel and direction. 
But according to this farming analogy, sometimes you just have to get up, put your clothes on, and get to work. It's wise to look at the patterns of weather and plan according to seasons, but don't let immobility paralyze you. For some of us in here, we just got to get to work. So maybe today you're feeling the the prompting of the Spirit to, to make a move in a certain area of your life. Even if you can't foresee all that will result from that move, maybe you just have to step out in faith and make it today. Start moving. Take a step, then another step. And as you do, trust God through it all. So to sum up this first section, verse 1 through 6, we could say two things. Since the future's uncertain, Solomon first says, prepare as best you can now so you're not knocked off course then. And secondly, work hard without procrastination, trusting God with the results. So let's move on to verse 7. Solomon shifts from wise living in view of an uncertain future to wise living in view of one certain future. So every one of us in here, no exception, is getting older. We are now 45 minutes older than when the service started. And for all of us, no exception, our lives end the same way. So look at verse 7. How do we live wisely in light of the certain future of death? Verse 7. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. So in these verses, Solomon's contrasting light and darkness with life and death. And he's pointing out that God's gift of life is to be enjoyed fully, especially in view of inescapable death. So he says, whether you're young or whether you've lived many years, wisdom would invite you to rejoice in the life that we have now as we remember that death is coming. So for Christians, this rhythm of rejoice and remember, rejoice and remember, this is a key to wise living. And Solomon goes on to unpack what that actually looks like. So look at verse 9. He starts out talking to children, so if there's any children in here, tune in now. And then he expands it to young adults and uh, broadens it eventually to older people. So look at verse 9. He says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. Verse 10. So remove grief and anger from your heart. And put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So if anyone's ever observed children, I think it's safe to say that the kids typically enjoy life more easily than adults do. Is that a truth I can speak from the pulpit this morning? Kids can turn anything into a fun time. So uh, we have some friends that uh, a month or two ago we were playing at their house, and, and in their basement they had a house that was made out of a refrigerator box. And my kids thought that was awesome. So week upon week, they were asking, Daddy, can we make something out of a a box? And as any good killjoy dad would, I said, well, we're not buying a refrigerator anytime soon, but the next time we get a box, we'll figure out something to do with it. 
So a few weeks went by, and finally we got a box that was large enough to make a cardboard car. So we turned it into a car. And hours upon hours and hours of creativity and coloring and pretending were invested in that cardboard car from Target. Um, Kids can turn anything into a fun time. What I see as a cardboard box that needs to be thrown into the dumpster, kids see the beauty of what could this be. Kids are naturally inclined to enjoy life, even the simple things. But then we start to get older and grumpier. And over time, we start to lose our ability to rejoice. We learn more and more as life progresses how to not enjoy life. You know, it's probably due to responsibilities that mount up and pressure that increases on us to succeed. But over time, is this true? We find our joy capacity at an all-time low. And that's normal. But for Christians, that need not be the case. Those of us who are in Christ are invited to rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you missed it, he says it again, rejoice, Philippians 4. For Christians, rejoicing in God And enjoying the life that we have in God is inherent in God's design and desire for his people. So Solomon's exhortation to us, regardless of our age, is to rejoice. From the deep center and navigating core of our hearts, find enjoyment in life. Verse 9, look at it. He says, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. In other words, do whatever you want to do with all the resources you've been given. Whatever you see that is good, grab a hold of it. Eat it, drink it, play it, watch it, read it, hike it, build it, cook it, drive it. Whatever it is, enjoy it. But do so in light of the second part of verse 9. Whatever you do, do it with the understanding that God will bring you to judgment for these things. Now, if you were just to read that verse on its own, it kind of seems that God's a a furrow-browed condemning judge, doesn't it? You know, enjoy life, follow your heart, pursue the desires of your eyes, but know that I'm going to get you. And I'd encourage you this morning, if that's your view of God, that he's out to get you, waiting for you to fail so he can condemn and judge you, I'd encourage you to challenge that view. Because the God of the Bible, if you read it, the true and living God is a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives even when we fail. And if we'll accept it, he takes our guilt and our condemnation upon himself. God is not out to get you but he is out to protect you from the destructive nature of sin. And the way he protects us is by showing us and leading us into the path of life, which leads directly to him. God's rules are not restrictive. They're an invitation to life. If you don't believe this, you need to start believing this this morning, that God actually wants you to enjoy the life that you have. And a primary deterrent to that enjoyment is sin, which so easily entangles. No no matter how much pleasure or satisfaction sin promises, it always harms and it always hurts those around us. So Solomon says, follow the impulses of your heart, 
But if it tempts you to sin, just turn away. And follow the desires of your eyes, but if it tempts you to sin, run away. The reality is that proper enjoyment of life is only possible within the boundaries established by God. The best example, the only one I could think of of this, is fire, right? Fire is a wonderful, beautiful gift in the boundary of the fireplace. It's, it's warming. It's comforting. You can drink your hot coffee or hot cocoa with your family and just enjoy it. But outside of the boundary, fire is destructive and utterly devastating, right? Solomon wants to make sure that he's clear. Enjoy life. Do what your heart longs to do. Pursue what your eyes desire. But if it leads to sin, if it's outside of God's intended boundary for it, it'll actually rob you of joy rather than fill you with joy. So God is the most joy-filled being in the universe, and he invites us to experience joy in him. And then flowing out of the joy that we have in him, we're able to enjoy the good gifts that he's given us to their fullest capacity. So for the Christian, we enjoy God's good gifts, but our enjoyment doesn't terminate on the gift itself. Through the gift, our joy and enjoyment rolls up to God, the giver of the gift. So for example, we enjoy good food, we enjoy good drink, but as we do so, our joy isn't terminating on the meat itself or the cook who prepared it. Our rejoicing rolls up. It rolls up to God, and we find deeper satisfaction and enjoyment in God, the giver of the gift, as we enjoy the goodness of the gift. So I just have a question. What if more Christians actually enjoyed their life more than they do? You know, I think at times Christians get this reputation of, of being restrictive and repressive rather than indulgent. We're known for being killjoys rather than full of joys. And what if we were known for our indulgence in the pleasure, the goodness of God? We sang this morning, your goodness is running after me. What if we ran after goodness in God? What if we actually live to the fullness of joy that we've been offered? Right? Psalm 16, I think Todd uh, referenced it last week or the week before. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore. What if we as Christians rejoiced always? I don't know, but maybe our joy in God would be contagious. Maybe God would use our rejoicing to draw more and more people to himself. What if our joy was attractive and an invitation to life with God? God wants us to enjoy life, and we find maximum joy in him. But so many of us, even as Christians, are just prone to dwelling on the darkness, right? Are there any other half, glass half empty people in here? I'll admit to you, I am a glass half empty person. I can look at anything good and tell you five reasons why it's bad. I am just prone to dwelling on the negative stuff of life, and this robs me from the ability to rejoice. Look at verse 10. Solomon addresses this. He says, remove grief and anger from your heart. And put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So the idea here is to not dwell excessively on our sufferings and sorrows. Don't get bogged down by the frustrations and pains of life in a broken world. 
Don't let the hurts from others against you lead you to anger that enslaves you. Solomon says, remove it from your heart. Put it away. And I'd suggest a way to put it away uh, coming out of this Thanksgiving holiday, and, and Carrie even addressed it this morning, is to look around and be thankful. Spend your time dwelling on God and His good gifts, and let your heart be moved to thankfulness. You know, Todd shared with the staff last week a very helpful teaching on, on how being grateful actually makes us joyful. There was a study done that showed that, that people who practice this exercise of writing down every day three things they're thankful for, which if you do the math, that's over a thousand things in a year. People who did this exercise of recording their gratitude actually increased in joyfulness. This idea of lifestyle gratitude if practiced, actually cultivates joy. So let's not spend our precious time and energy dwelling in the darkness. Let's work through our anger. Let's seek help in seasons of struggle and sorrow. And let's be those who help one another rejoice in the Lord always as we give thanks continually. And may our thankfulness increase our joyfulness so that the world can look at us and see, wow, those people have something that I need. So whether you're young or old, Solomon has said so far, enjoy the good gift of life. Enjoy it in God. Rejoice. And then chapter 12, verse 1, he invites us also to remember. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Chapter 12, verse 2, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. So we'll, we'll pause there for a minute. So like we said at the beginning, the reality is no one in here is getting any younger. And one day we must all face the inevitable restrictions that old age brings. And the way we do this, Solomon says, is by remembering our Creator. When you're young and as you grow old. Remember Him. And remember who you are in him, created in his image, called and commissioned by the creator with work to do in this world. And live your life in light of that. Verse 3 through 7 of chapter 12, uh, Solomon begins to walk us through a series of metaphors that describe the aging process. And this is just a great uh, piece of literature and poetry, too, if, if you're into that. Um, Solomon just illustrates different parts of our bodies that over time just break down. Some of the metaphors are clear and obvious. You'll be like, oh yeah, he's talking about that. Others are a bit unclear, so I'll try to unpack for you some of the study that I did this week. So verse 3, he says, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble. So here he's talking about our arms and our hands. Over time, they lose strength. And the mighty men stoop. Our legs, too, become weak. The, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. You know, as we age, we start losing teeth. Those who look through the windows grow dim. Our eyesight starts to fail us too. Verse 4. And the doors of the street are shut. Our senses gradually close. As the sound of the grinding mill is low, our, our hearing too eventually goes. And one will arise at the sound of the bird. We start losing our ability to sleep. And all the daughters of song will sing softly. This either means that our voices grow softer and indistinguishable over time, 
or that as we age, we just start falling asleep earlier. And both of these are, are probably true. Uh, some of you are falling asleep right now. I, I... <laughs> Verse 5, furthermore, men are afraid of a high place. This either means we develop a fear of heights as we age or we start fearing walking upstairs, one of those two. And afraid of terrors on the road. This could either mean we, we start stumbling as we walk or we grow increasingly fearful of, of travel on the road. The almond tree blossoms, our hair turns white. Uh, the grasshopper drags himself along. Our, our limbs, once so strong and dependable, now impair our mobility. And the caperberry is, is ineffective. We eventually get to a point where medication uh, no longer helps us. So what a picture he paints in these five verses. Only one thing remains, and he brings us to that next. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. One day, we'll all pass on, and people will gather either in this room or somewhere else to remember. This is the reality for all of us, no exceptions. So what's the wise practice for us to live in? Verse 6, he says it again. Remember him. So live your life in view of God. Remember who he is. Remember who you are in him. Remember what he's done for you in the gospel. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. So these metaphors, bowl, pitcher, cistern, these are all receptacles for water, right? And the idea is that eventually those things crack and our life drains out. Solomon here is describing the total collapse of our bodies in the imminent wake of death, which is where he goes next. Verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Here he takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, right? To dust, for dust you are, to dust you will return. So for each of us, no exception, unless the Lord returns, this describes our final day. If you're in Christ, you die, your body goes to the ground, and your soul goes to heaven to be with God. The source, substance of your eternal joy and gladness, you'll get to live with him forever, in whose presence there's fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And if you're not in Christ, you die, your body goes to the ground, and your soul will go to hell, where you've chosen to live life apart from God forever. So this morning, as we begin to close, in, in light of this coming day of death, how are we to live wisely now? As Solomon does, I want to direct this specifically to young people and then transition, direct some application specifically to older people. So for younger people, from children to college students to however old you are and if you still think you're young, this applies to you. Two things. One. Make the most of the life you have now. What a gift being young and vibrant, right? Some of us would say amen to that. Filled with energy and optimism. Enjoy everything in your life that is right and good. Every good and perfect gift that comes from above, enjoy it. Flee from sin. Pursue ultimate joy in God. And rejoice in all the good gifts he's given you. Let your enjoyment of everything that is good roll up to him 
in an increasing lifestyle of gratitude. And remember your creator, right? Put your faith in Christ now, today. If you haven't done so and you're young, you cannot wait till you're older to put your faith in Christ. You must do it today because you will not experience the life and the joy that he desires for you unless you put your hope in him today. So trust in him, rely on him, pursue him and enjoy him. That'd be the first thing I'd say to younger people. Well, then secondly, as we said earlier, practically, make good decisions today, countercultural decisions today that will set you up well for the future. So invest wisely in your schooling, in your career, in your financial health. Don't get consumed with consumer debt. You do not want to be knocked off course in the future when the unexpected things happen. Live today with tomorrow in view. Diversify your skill set. Try out different things. There's no one right path that every young person must take. Try things out. Experiment. See where the Lord might be leading you. Maximize your opportunities. And here's the key. Invite wise counsel from older generations pertaining to any and every area of your life. You know, as a slightly younger person, sometimes I think that some of my questions are dumb. Like, if I ask somebody that, they're going to be like, what are you, dumb? You, got no, you can't figure that out on your own? I guarantee, if, if, if you are a younger person and you approach an older person about any area of your life, finance, relationship, housing, whatever it might be, you will receive a wealth of wisdom. There's no dumb question. So step out and ask for help. You know, I was thinking about it this week. I don't, I don't know exactly how many, age, how many years of wisdom are in this room, but, but say there's 100 people in here who average, say, the age of 50. That's 5,000 years of wisdom, a collection of 5,000 years of wisdom and experience that we as younger people can draw from. So don't miss this amazing opportunity to be part of a multi-generational church like this. Young people, there is countless ages, decades, centuries, millennia of wisdom in this room to be grabbed hold of. So grab hold of it. Reach out, develop relationships with people who aren't your age and see what the Lord might do through those things. So that's my challenge to younger people, whether you're in elementary school, college, or beyond. Now, finally, older people, just a few words of application. As we've been saying, regardless of your age, enjoy your life, remember your creator. And I don't know yet from experience, but I would imagine this gets harder and harder to do as our bodies break down and pain increases and the effects of age start to take their toll. I would assume that it's probably harder to enjoy life and to remember your creator when your body is breaking down. But please, older generations, please set an example for us younger folk of what it looks like to walk well with God, to rejoice in Him, even through the midst of pain, suffering, and sorrow in a broken world. You know, many of you are incredible examples of this already, um, but, but what a gift for younger people to be able to look up and glean from godly saints who are walking well through life in the midst of pain and sorrow. So thank you all for going before us and setting an example for forging the path ahead. Please continue hoping in Christ and walking in faith as you continue to age. But, but speaking on behalf of, of younger people, we need to step out and initiate relationships and mentorships with you.
but please help us do that. If there's someone young that you just feel the Holy Spirit directing you to, and you want to reach out, invite to lunch, and just say, hey, I'm just feeling prompted to be in your life, to invest in your life. Are you open to that, and what would that look like? Godly older saints, please step out and invest in younger generations. As you're enjoying life in God, help us do the same. As you're walking through life in remembrance of God, invite us into that experience with you. You know, we need you. We need you to help us live wisely. And as you age, I need you to hear this. Even if you've retired from your career, please don't retire from discipleship. You know, a few years back, I was reading an account of a 61-year-old man who was passionate to not waste his later years. And, and since I have no cre credibility to speak on behalf of a 61-year-old man, this morning I want you to hear his thoughts through the voice of one of my older friends. So if Jerry's in here, uh, Jerry's going to read for you this excerpt on what it means to live well as you age. I felt pretty spry when I came to church today. <laughs> What will it mean to get old to the glory of God? It will mean a radical break with the mindset of our unbelieving peers, especially a break with the typical dream of retirement. Millions of Christian men and women are finishing their formal careers in their 50s and 60s, and for most of them, there will be a good 20 years before their physical and mental powers fail. What will it mean to live those final years for the glory of God? How many Christians set their sights on resting, playing, traveling, the world's substitute for heaven, since the world does not believe that there will be a heaven beyond the grave? The mindset of our peers is that we must reward ourselves now, in this life, for the long years of our labor. Eternal rest and joy after death is an irrelevant consideration. When you don't believe in heaven to come and you're not con content in the glory of Christ now, you will seek the kind of retirement that the world seeks. But what a strange reward for a Christian to set his sights on. Twenty years of leisure while living in the midst of the last days of infinite consequence for millions of people who need Christ. What a tragic way to finish the last mile before entering the presence of the king who finished his last mile so differently. Oh God, don't let me waste my final years. Don't let me buy the American dream of retirement month after month of leisure and play and hobbies and putzing around in the garage and rearranging the furniture and golfing and fishing and sitting and watching television. Lord, please have mercy on me. Spare me this curse. That is my prayer for you as well, that you would make the greatness of God known to the generations we are leaving behind. Psalm seventy-one, eighteen: Even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Thank you, Jerry. So older generations, continue investing in the kingdom. Once you retire from your career, please do not retire from discipleship. You have wisdom and experience to impart to younger generations. We need you, and the world needs you. Jesus still has a mission to accomplish, and you have a vital part to play. So in closing, um, about, about 10 years ago, I was, I was 26 at the time, I was just doing some introspection and reflection on my life, my, my past, my future. I was just kind of in a state of, Lord, you just need to speak to me. I, 
I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and he just kind of showed to me that about, provided he gives me 90 years, about a third of my life had already been lived. So I started thinking, what am I going to do with, with the final two-thirds? And uh, I can't remember if I saw this somewhere, if it just came to mind, but, but I kind of divided my life into three sections. So years zero through 30, I wrote down, would be my preparation years. I would just read good books. I would invite wisdom and insight from older folks, and uh, I would just try to get mentors around me to help me, guide me, to prepare well. And then 31 through 60 would be my pouring out years. I would just go for it with all the energy and intensity that the Lord would provide, walk with Jesus, love my family, make disciples who make disciples. These would be my pouring out years. And then I was just thinking that maybe 61 through 90 could be my passing on years, that I'd intentionally find younger people to, to walk through life with and, and pour into them to develop leaders, mentor, coach. So 30 years of preparation, 30 pouring out, 30 passing on. That's kind of how I'm viewing my life, however long the Lord gives me. And I don't know where you fall on that spectrum right now, but, but I do know that regardless of where you are, God's call to each of us through this passage in Ecclesiastes this morning is the same. In light of the uncertainty of the future, in light of a certain future of death, rejoice and remember. So Melanie Park, may we be a people who enjoy the life we've been given to its full capacity in God, to a degree that others look at us and are like, wow, those people love God and love life way too much. And may we remember God our Creator as we live every moment of every day walking in the wisdom from above that only He can provide. So let me pray, and we'll just ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for obscure Old Testament literature that we can spend 16, 15 weeks on walking through. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who brings things to the forefront for us to apply and to walk in. So Father, would you bless us this morning, regardless of our age, regardless of our current state of suffering or joy, would you pour yourself on each of us this morning? Speak to us throughout this week, guide us by your spirit this week, and give us the wisdom that we need, wisdom from above, and otherworldly wisdom as we navigate life through this broken world. So help us, Jesus, we need you, and we need each other. In your name we pray, amen.